This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best author interviews directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Here's one of our favorite interviews from the PW Radio Archives. We hope you enjoy it, and check our site on September 14th for our brand new show, PW Insider. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Tamara Winfrey Harris on the line. Her new book is The Sisters Are All Right. Hi, Tamara. I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you so much. I'm honored. So you write about current events, politics, pop culture, and how those things intersect with race and gender. How did that lead to this, which is your first book? Well, initially, I was very fascinated by um, the way the media and the way people were talking about this so-called black marriage crisis, um, which is this idea, well, which is the truth, that um, black women marry much less than our white counterparts. Um, but in discussing that, there was a lot of talking about what black women must be doing wrong to not get chosen. So initially, my book idea was going to be talking about that, but then as I researched that issue, I realized that a lot of the ways that we talk about black women in marriage, you know, there's something much deeper there. The same sort of racist and sexist ideas that kind of undercut that issue affect black women in a lot of areas, like, you know, how they feel about their appearance and their health and marriage and motherhood, you know, all of those things. So I wanted to talk um, more broadly about those issues. And the book is kind of a culmination of things that I've been writing about for about eight years in, in a lot of different places. So, yeah, you, you talk about the obstacles black women face in America, but how they're doing, you know, how well they're doing, you mm-hmm. know, despite it all. Um, you've included your own experiences alongside with uh, interviews of women. Uh, how did you decide who to interview and how did you know to uh, put the book together this way? Well, one of the reasons that I put it together the way I did is because I think sometimes black women's voices tend to be erased. You know, when we talk about black issues, very often, um, you know, the media talks to black men and looks at those issues from a male perspective. And very often when we talk about gender, um, we talk about that through the lens of white women. And so very often black women's voices are kind of erased. So it was really important to me to get the voices of actual black women talking about their experiences um, into the book. Um, And then I tried to cast a wide net. I mean, I talked to some friends of friends. I used social media. Um, I got postings in some... 
some online media spaces and print media spaces. And I also tried to make an effort to get at the diversity um, there is among black women. Like I wanted to make sure I talked to straight women and also women who identify as lesbian. I wanted to talk to women who are married and single, women who were young and women who were older. You know, I didn't do a perfect job there, but I really wanted to get a diversity of voices because we are not a monolith. And in our review, we say, uh, and we quote, this energetic, passionate, and progressive mission statement illuminates old stereotypes that continue to dog black women today. Servile, self-sacrificing mammy, emasculating sapphire, licentious Jezebel, and the post-1960s uh, image of the matriarch, uh, matriarch mm-hmm. a baby-producing single mom on welfare. Um, tell us about these stereotypes, how, how they came about and still sadly persist. Well, a lot of them are rooted in slavery, um, believe it or not. And, and we know that that is something that happened more than 100 years ago. But those ideas sort of continue to, to continue to dog black women. So, you know, at a time when women, and generally that means white middle class women, um, were seen as very, very delicate and very chaste and beautiful. And there was kind of the pinnacle of femininity, you know, black women, just by virtue of being enslaved, had to be positioned in a different way, sort of the polar opposite. So that's where a lot of um, ideas about our being, for instance, hypersexual came from, Um, because if you're going to use a woman and breed her for new human property, you certainly can't think of her as being chaste and virginal. And so, for instance, that idea of the Jezebel kind of follows us. It's the reason I say in the book that, you know, very many people will look at Madonna and see her as kind of a pinnacle of feminism because she's fighting back against the idea that women's sexuality is all about men and men and women can't be sexual. But at the same time, some of those same people may look at, say, a Beyonce or a Nicki Minaj and see their sexual displays as some how inappropriate and immoral and kind of thoughtless. You know, we're there are sexist elements to the way both black women and white women are viewed, and certainly every other woman, um, but the way it's enacted on us tends to differ and, and is affected by things like race. And then you get all of these white women writing think pieces about, uh, is she really a feminist? Like there's Mm -hmm. uh, some sort of litmus test that black women are not passing just because they're black. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, And how does this tie into uh, the the rise of womanism as as a parallel movement or as a response to the white woman's feminism? I can't, you know, I don't know a lot about womanism. I certainly know that it exists. I I feel comfortable calling myself a feminist. Um, And I understand that there are many black women who don't feel comfortable doing that. But for me, and, and largely I know some black women don't feel comfortable because of the way they see white women's um, needs and experience kind of preferenced in feminism. 
But as I turn that over in my head, I also realize that black women and other women of color have always been part of feminism. You have wonderful people like Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks and the Cohambi River Collective and all of Sojourner Truth. Um, you know, and I, I don't want to cede feminism to other women um, because it seems like erasing all of those women's hard work and they call themselves feminists. So I'm okay with calling myself a feminist. That makes a lot of sense. So another mm-hmm. thing that you talk about in your book um, is about how black men can sometimes be obstacles to black women's success. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I, I mean, none of us can help being affected by a lot of the biases that, that surround us in this society. And black men are no exception. Um, they are men, so they can be sexist, just like all men can be. Um, and, you know, there is an element of respectability politics that I talk about in the book. So, again, going back to, say, the Jezebel issue, you know, black women are very often asked to um, prove that we aren't Jezebels by being particularly non-sexual or asexual, um, chaste and virginal. And very often it's black men who um, kind of wields that you know, that stick um, in saying that, you know, black women should have respect for themselves. Um, a woman like Beyonce should cover up. Um, you don't want to be outside. Like, what are people going to think? Um, so in that way, and, and some others, I mean, black, black men are men, so they are still part of patriarchal culture, and so, you know, they play some role in, you know, oppressing black women. In, in your book, you you you, you talk about African American women, and, and you uh, I think we're co- quoting you have the highest workforce participation rate among all American women. And in 2013, there was 1.1 million owned their own businesses. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us about these businesses and and of some of these entrepreneurs who you interviewed. You know, one of the people that I interviewed, and I absolutely love her, her name is Jamila Banu, and she started a business called Oyin Handmade. Um, and believe it or not, I started as a fan because I'm a black woman who wears her hair natural, so unstraightened, and it was one of the products that I really loved. But she is a black woman who started off, you know, she decided to go natural. And I talk about in the book that there's kind of a, a natural hair revolution, um, that's happening right now. Um, the majority of black women historically have chosen to straighten their hair because that's seen as more acceptable and more professional. But over, I'd say, the last decade, more and more black women have become comfortable with wearing their hair in styles um, that lend themselves to, you know, our hair that is sometimes, you know, kinkier and thicker um, than our white counterparts. So Jamila started off, she went natural and she started trying trying out natural products and mixing them in her own home to try on her own hair. Um, And she went from doing that to people asking her for her recipes. Um, So she shared the recipes, and then people said, no, I would prefer that you just send me the product. And so she went from that to having a brick-and-mortar store in Baltimore, and I believe she is now in... 
400 targets across the country and she and her husband have worked together to make it a business and that business is also and she will tell you a very affirming business if you order something from OEN Handmade you get this little card that says hello beautiful so not only is she trying to affirm black women but I mean she has also built built a business That sounds incredible. So tell us a little bit about some of the other people who you interviewed for the book. Oh, I I interviewed some amazing women. I always say that this, if no one ever reads this book, just the opportunity to talk to so many amazing women, it, it was like therapy for me. It was wonderful. So I talked to um, one woman who is in her 60s, and she talks about um, how hard she has worked throughout her life. She was a teacher. She was a mom, and how hard she drove herself because she thought she was supposed to be a strong black woman, um, and she thought she was it should be able to do all things and, and juggle family and work and all of her obligations um, until her body told her no and she became sick um, and you know was down for several months and she talked to me about how that changed her perspective and how now in her 60s she is more able to slow down and know when to say no and as she said no that no is a complete sentence mm-hmm. and you don't have to explain to anyone why you can't do what they need you to do and i thought that was powerful especially coming from a woman who is older um i also talked to some woman women who are single black moms and that's a group that is often denigrated um but they talked about the ways that um they work hard for their families they talk about the ways that they are thoughtful and the way they include a village in the raising of their children. One is particularly interesting because she is a single mother by choice. She is also working to get her Ph.D., and she is also a minister in the AME Church. So she is certainly not anyone's stereotype of what people think about when they think single black mother. In doing your research about the uh, African-American women in the workforce, did you find that it was or were there, were there figures that, that, that discussed um, whether this was uniform across the country or are there places uh, more in, in one part of the country more than others? Actually, that I do not know. I did not come across anything like that. But and uh, you are from the uh, Midwest. I'm jumping a little bit ahead right here, and you sure. consider yourself a uh, Midwesterner at heart. Um, you're, you're from Indiana. Um, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us, tell us about your upbringing there, and uh, tell us about what makes a Midwesterner. Sure. Well, I always. Oh, I love. I love this topic because. Um, you know, I actually wrote an article about this once. When people start, you know, we're coming up on another election cycle, and people are going to start talking about people in the heartland, and they're going to make it sound like everyone who lives between the two coasts is white and conservative and rural or suburban, and we all think alike, and that couldn't be further from the truth. I grew up in Indiana, 
Indiana, which is more than corn. I actually grew up in northwestern Indiana, which is very industrial. It is the Rust Belt, um, and it is it is very diverse. I grew up in Gary, Indiana, hmm. me and Michael Jackson, though at different I was, times. I was just going to um, mention Michael my Jackson. Parents are, my parents are actually, my parents are educators. My mom is a teacher, and my dad is a retired principal, and he is part of the Great Migration up from the South. My maternal grandparents are also from the South. Um, so I, like a lot of other children of the Great Migration, that's kind of a unique experience that we have, you know, being Northerners but having strong Southern Southern roots. So I grew up right outside of Chicago, but in Indiana, in the Midwest, in a blue area, in a red state. So We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Tamara Winfrey Harris, the author of The Sisters Are All Right, who was just telling us about her, her roots in the South and experience growing up in the Midwest. Um, tell us a little bit about how that connects you to different people who are uh, activists in this area, feminist activists and feminist researchers across the country. How, how, do, you, how do you handle the, the diversity that people might not expect is there? You know, what I found is that I've made so many connections with other writers, and in particular feminist and anti-racist writers, online. The Internet is a wonderful thing sometimes. <laughs> you can find your tribe really easily. And I, you know, and I think that's where my tribe is. There's so many wonderful, wonderful, wonderful um, women authors and writers that I've connected with online who are tremendously supportive and have been supportive of the book. And I also think perhaps a little bit of it is in my blood. You know, my mother has always been a wonderful writer, and I like to think that I have some of her talent. And I even um, found my great maternal grandmother who you know raised 10 kids on a farm in Alabama recently came across about a hundred poems that she wrote, um, which I find amazing. And they're good, too. Wow. But I think some of it may just run in my blood. A lot of wonderful women who love to write. And uh, let's talk about some of the other folks who are who are writing right now in the in the same spheres. Um, publishing mm-hmm. at the same time as your book is Tanahasi Coates's book Between the World and Me, which is a mm-hmm. letter to his son. Um, how how does that work? Um, uh, that conversation among black men kind of parallel the work that you're doing. Well, I, th- I think what you said is absolutely perfect. It does parallel what a lot of black women and what a lot of black feminists are writing about, um, about their, their experiences. And I know that I've seen some pushback online about, um, you know, ta is an amazing writer. I read his stuff and want to throw my computer across the room. <laughs> I think a lot of us so feel that good. way. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there is, um, 
you know, there's this rush to say there can be only one and that his new book is kind of the book on race that everyone needs to read. And I just hope that everyone will read his book because it's sitting on my Kindle. So it's my next read. I know it is wonderful, but that um, they will also read the diversity of experiences, including black women and black trans women like Janet Mock's book. And remember that there cannot be one book that is representative of the story of race in America. Um, you you had published an article in uh, Bitch Magazine, which is now in its, uh, the article in a in a, in a uh, uh, anthologized in the textbook Arlington Reader, which is now in its fourth edition. Um, and we were talking about black women. Tell us about the article, uh, your article, "No Disrespect: Black Women and the Burden of Respectability." So I dug into the idea of respectability a little deeper, and I used um, some of the feedback that black women in the public eye get when they um, take on sexual roles, or in the case of uh, Viola Davis, she took on the role of uh, a maid in The Help. And it's this idea that emerged in the 19th century among black leaders that the way to gain equality was through assimilation. So aggressively adopting the mores and the values of the majority culture. Um, and that idea, it worked. It definitely has a huge place in the civil rights movement. You know, you see pictures from the 60s and the 50s, and you see people marching, and they're, you know, in their Sunday best. They're in dresses, mm-hmm. and they're in suits, and you know, shirts and ties. Um, and it was a way of saying that we are like you. We are respectable, and we... Um, we deserve these same rights that you have. But there is a downside to that because, you know, the community or the black community or any marginalized community can end up endorsing values that are flawed. So in this case, for instance, you know, white women have long been oppressed by sexist views of femininity. So, you know, rather than pushing back against that, sometimes marginalized communities tend to double down on that. And in this case, it requires that black women then um, adhere to these stringent um, guidelines of both race and gender, which is which is unfair. And so I looked at how that affects black women in the public eye, like Viola Davis, who people were saying, you know, it's a real shame that she was um, nominated for an Oscar for this role because it's a maid's role and that's not respectable. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Which, you know, is a is a is a terrible thing to say about all the black women that had to be domestic workers and that continue to be. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, I've seen people talking about respectability politics a lot recently um, in the context of discussing women who are the victims of police violence, uh, Mm -hmm. saying that the respectability will not save you. Uh, when you know racism can can overwhelm any image that you try to project, um, how how does your work tie in to uh, efforts like Say Her Name and uh, other work to recognize Black women both as activists against police brutality and as victims of that brutality? Well, one of the things that I talk about in the chapter on strength is how Black women are seen as. Um, durable, 
um, you know, there's a downside to the idea of the strong black woman. Mm-hmm. Um, we are seen as unusually strong, so not um, not worthy of care and empathy, which is why, you know, you often see, you know, it's it's been called missing white woman syndrome. When um, a young, pretty white woman goes missing, um, you know, it, it's all over the television from coast to coast, you know, in every city. But when a black woman goes missing, similarly, you don't hear about it at all. Um, In the same way, you know, we're hearing a lot about black men who are victims of extrajudicial violence, um, but not as much about um, black women, which is a shame because we are dying, too. Um, So that chapter explores a little bit why we tend to be left out of those discussions and how it's rooted in this idea that we are super strong, um, as Zora Neale Hurston said, the mules of the world, and so don't need the kind of care that other people do. So there's, there's so much going on right now in activism, in uh, shifts in media attention uh, to crimes, particularly uh, against black people. How do you see the conversation continuing to change in the coming years? Or is there just too much happening? It's hard to predict. Well, the one thing that I think is great is that you are hearing more, even though you're not hearing as much as you should about black women, there are black women who are making their voices heard within the conversation. I mean, the founders of Black Lives Lives Matter are women of color. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that will change the, the conversation to make sure that all black lives matter and some don't matter more than others. Perfectly put. So you you were just talking about uh, men who in incarceration, and uh, just an hour or so ago, uh, there was on the news a um, African American woman who was arrested for a bogus ticket or some sort of ticket and brought into the police station. And um, the next day, I believe it was the next day, they they found her um, hanged. Mm-hmm. And how, I mean, this is, this is one of the first cases of, of an African-American American woman uh, that I've heard recently. You were just talking about how we've not heard that much, even though it's happening. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, one of the things that just grabbed my heart and I saw earlier today on Facebook a woman was responding to the story. A woman's name was Sandra Bland, by the way, is the woman who was possibly killed in Texas. And she was saying, you know, the person on Facebook was responding to this story and saying, you know, now if I get stopped by police for taillight or speeding or whatever minor infraction, she said, I'm I'm scared mm-hmm. because I don't know whether I will ever see my family again. I really don't. And I don't know whether anyone will care if something happens to me. And that's that's heartbreaking and that should not be the case in this country. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's reading these stories I, as you said um the internet is a an incredible place for connecting with people and and sharing stories. I know that I've learned a tremendous amount just by reading people's stories on social media. Do you feel like that's helping to 
maybe break down some of these barriers and help to to sort of pop the white bubble that a lot of white folks live in and help them realize that there's something going on that they haven't been shown by the media? I really do. I think the Internet has become kind of an equalizer because there are so many platforms where there are not gatekeepers. And you can talk about what you want to talk about. You know, a lot of people talk about black Twitter. I mean, that's one of the places where, you know, people can have these amazing discussions and there's no one to say that that's inappropriate or there's no one to say that, you know, our readers don't care about that. You can talk about what you want to and you can find like-minded people. And I think that's changing the way we view a host of issues. And you've obviously had some success in traditional media. Do you have any advice for um, black women particularly who are trying to break past uh, that that perhaps white editorial lens of our readers won't care, or this isn't relevant, and to, to help get their voices heard in these larger mainstream publications? I would say write and write well. Keep improving your writing keep reading, and I'd say have good mentors, mentors who are black women writers, but also mentors who are not, because many of those people can help you get entry into other spaces. And uh, what what are some good ways to connect with those mentors? Because I'm, I'm sure that's the question that comes to mind to a lot of people listening to this. To be honest, in my experience, I found many of them online. I found them in spaces where, um, you know, women who write gather. And I found them, I think, by doing my own writing and writing in a way that got noticed by some people. Um, you know, and we would meet and we would share our common ideas and we would share our challenges and our contacts and, hey, here's the best editor um, to contact over here. And, you know, no, maybe you don't want to try this outlet. Try this other one. I think that's crucial. Actually, it's one of the points made in the book how important it is to have a circle of women. And that goes for black women and white women, too. Um, a circle of us that support each other, I think, can be very, very powerful for a writer and for anyone else. We've been talking with Tamara Winfrey Harris, and you can find her book, The Sisters Are All Right, in stores right now. Tamara, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, Senior Writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a Publishing News Week in Review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. And don't forget, PW Insider launches on September 14th. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 